0: Pray with me, please. Dear Lord, open our hearts and minds to hear the gospel, to hear your truth. Hide me under the shadow of your wings. Speak through me. Use my words, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was uh, reading an article on CNN Money. I normally don't read an article on CNN Money, by the way. I don't have any money to read about money on CNN Money, but I happen to be reading this article on CNN Money because it was interesting. The, it was written in 2006 and the title was called, What It Takes to be Great. The premise of this article was to dispel the myth that those in our culture who are successful, that is to say biz, people in business or athletics, etc., are successful because of pure talent. The piece argues that talent alone is not enough to put you at the top of your field. It takes hard work and determination beyond what the average person is willing or able to do. He gives two examples to highlight his point, Warren Buffett and Tiger Woods. Mr. Buffett, he says, is famous for his discipline in the amount of hours he spent studying financial statements of potential investment targets. Tiger Woods, he showed spent countless hours, beginning when he was three years old, perfecting his swing and even remaking his swing twice throughout his career. He would hit hundreds of balls to the same hole and would chart every shot meticulously. The moral of the story, according to the author, is that no one is great without hard work. The author even cites scientific studies that reveal this conclusion in all areas of life. The article caused me to think about how this kind of mindset might relate to our faith and how we live our lives as followers of Christ. At first glance, if we take the practice of hard work and determination at face value and apply it to our faith lives, it would seem that we were falling into a works-righteousness kind of mindset, which we'll talk about a little more in detail later. But as I studied for my sermon this week and began to look at what Jesus was really saying, I thought this article could be helpful, though falling short of a truly Christian mindset. What struck me was how people like Warren Buffett and Tiger Woods were at the top of their profession because of their passion to be great. This caused me to think about what I'm passionate about in my life. Beyond my calling to the ministry, which I hope to be the best I can be at, I'm first and foremost a follower of Christ. The question landed on me like a hammer hitting a nail when I read the passage from Luke 13, verses 22 through 30. And I asked myself, do I strive after the Lord Jesus with the same tenacity and determination as these professionals do for their profession? Do I strive for God's kingdom wholeheartedly and not the kingdom of Nathan? Woods and Buffett were striving for different purposes, but their examples hold a mirror up to our striving for the Lord. If they have struggled for greatness as the world sees it, in areas of life that will have little value in the end, yes, I said it, golf will have little value in the end. Sorry. How much more should we struggle for eternal values in God's kingdom with the same passion and dogged determination? Where these men sought to put themselves first in their profession, we strive for Christ to be first, denying ourselves and submitting to his will. Jesus uses similar language in our passage from Luke today. In chapter 12 and 13 of Luke, Jesus has been teaching and speaking some of the strongest warnings and words of foreboding in all of the Gospels. In the beginning of chapter 13, 1 through 9, Jesus tells the mostly Jewish crowd to repent or perish if they are not bearing fruit. In chapter 13, 10 through 17, Jesus becomes enraged when having just healed a woman in the synagogue who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years, a leader of the synagogue stands up to condemn his practice of healing on the Sabbath. After leaving from there, Jesus starts to make his way to Jerusalem all the while teaching and preaching in little towns and villages. In one town, someone asked him, Lord, will only a few be saved? Now you have to understand where this question is coming from. It was coming from a Jew, and most likely a teacher or a Pharisee. The question revealed a hot topic of the day. Discussions about the messianic promise could be heard in many Jewish homes and synagogues in the first century. Jews believed that when the Messiah came, he would destroy all unbelievers, especially the Romans, who were their oppressive overlords. Knowing all of this background, Jesus avoids answering this pointless and loaded question. And he turns it back on the one asking the question and makes him wonder if he is really saved. He says, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able. This morning I want to spend some time unpacking what it means to, one, strive wholeheartedly for God. And two, to understand that to strive in the way that Jesus calls us to is to have kingdom values. And finally, to strive in God's kingdom means that the first will be last and the last will be first. First, those who strive wholeheartedly will see the kingdom. Last week I talked about running the race of faith and how the language used in Hebrews 12 is the same used for someone competing in the Greek games. Similar language is being used here when Jesus says to strive to enter through the narrow door. The Greek word for strive literally means to agonize. That is not to stress, fret, or worry. It's to exert oneself. However, with everything that you have, everything... This word has been used in other historical documents to refer to a, what a prizefighter would do to win a fight, as well as carrying the meaning to struggle with difficulties and dangers for the purpose of achieving a goal. It also could mean to endeavor with strenuous zeal to obtain something. All of these definitions paint a full picture of what God is calling us to do in our striving for him. If we read this passage out of context, as I said before, we can understand it to mean that it's something that we have to achieve by the power of our own will. But this is not what God is calling us to do. And frankly, it's impossible. John 10.9 says, I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pastor. Jesus is the one who gives us access to the kingdom. This is a major reversal of how those in the world achieve their goals. That is, with sheer force of human will. When a follower of Jesus strives, it is done by the surrender of the human will. As believers in an all-powerful, loving God, the more we strive to become less, the greater he is in our lives. This is foolishness to the world. When we agonize, as the word suggests, we do so in order to lay aside false values like pride, self-centeredness, lust, hate, self-righteousness, which, by the way, is what incensed Jesus to no end about the religious elite. The legalism of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and teachers of the law is exactly what he is addressing here. The hypocrites, as Jesus called them, tried to be righteous through the law. But we read in James 2, verse 10, that for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it, implying that we can never strive hard enough on our own. So striving wholeheartedly to enter through the narrow gate is not a mandate to save yourself by your good works. For that is not the right gate. This is the broad way spoken by Jesus in Matthew 7.13. He says, "This This way is wide, and the road is easy, and it leads to destruction. But there are many who will take it. Our mandate is to die to self, which can only be accomplished through faith in Jesus and it is self-denial that really allows us to know who Jesus is and to be in relationship with him which produces kingdom values within us and allows us to see the kingdom fulfilled this leads us to our second point those who strive the way Jesus calls us the way those who strive the way Jesus calls us to will have kingdom values Jesus makes it very clear in his warning that those who will not make it through the narrow gate will be confused as to why, since they have tried their best on their own power and pedigree. He says in verse 26, Then you will begin to say, But we ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I do not know where you have come from. Go away from me, all you evildoers. Jesus is clearly saying that proximity to him does not save a knowing relationship with shared values does. If there is no acceptance, no response, no dying to self, our belief is a hollow one. However, when we do hear his words and his teachings and act upon them, our eyes begin to focus on what is in Jesus' line of sight. We strive the way, if, when we strive the way he has called us to, that is dying to self, we can then care about what he cares about, and begin to have kingdom values. In Matthew 25, 41 through 45, we see Jesus speaking about the things he values in stark terms. The passage reads Then he will say to those on his left, You that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food, I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger or naked or sick in prison, and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I tell you, Just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Jesus is implying here that many of those who had physical proximity to Jesus neither knew nor cared about his values. What is so startling about the context of Matthew and Luke's passages is that Jesus isn't talking to sinners. He's not talking to prostitutes, tax collectors. He's talking to church people to religious people. As most of us in this room are in the same category, we need to take an opportunity this morning to stop and think about our lives. We must look into our souls and wonder if we are the kind of people who think that we can punch our church attendance card, drop a 20 in the offering plate, and shake my hand as you exit the door and think that's sufficient. This is what many Jews who confronted Jesus, thought. They were under the impression that their status as God's chosen people and the fact that they kept the law by striving to be good would save them in the end. But Jesus smashes their thin hope by telling them it's not enough. He says, with with that kind of belief, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth because they will be thrown out into the cold. He says, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. Which brings us to our third point. Those who strive to be last will see the kingdom of God. By uttering this pithy saying, Jesus is both referencing the Gentiles' presence at the Messianic table, as well as those who are lowly and humbled, being ahead of those who are great and mighty. He says in verse 29 of chapter 13, Then people will come from east and west, from north and south, and will eat in the kingdom of God. Indeed, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. So what does it mean to be last? Nobody likes to be last, right? You don't like to be last in the Starbucks line. Nobody likes to be picked last for a kickball game. Our culture is so obsessed with being first and not last. We love to feed the me monster, as a friend of mine calls it. But this kind of mindset, Jesus says, will not get you through the narrow gate. This is a hard teaching for many people. And why some people never make a firm commitment to Jesus Even some of his so-called disciples, not the twelve, left him over this kind of talk. The rich young ruler turns away sad because he's striving to be great in God's kingdom without God. This flies in the face of not only our culture, but it offends our very flesh and sinful nature. This is why Jesus says we must strive to compete against ourselves. Paul echoes this in 1 Corinthians 9, 25-27, when he says, Athletes exercise self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly, nor do I box as though beating the air, but I punish my body and enslave it, so that after proclaiming to others I myself should not be disqualified. We strive to tame the flesh so as not to fall short of the goal of being in the Lord's presence. But isn't it just like God to present us with a task that is so great that we could never attain it on our own? When you set your feet upon the rocky, narrow path that Jesus walked, you find that you need to walk a little differently. This isn't the broad highway that your feet are used to. It's the kind of path that only a guide can lead you down. And that guide is Jesus. And it is the path that leads to the kingdom. To be last is to be greatest in God's kingdom. This kind of striving would never help Warren Buffett make another billion and it wouldn't help Tiger get his sixth masters win to tie Jack Nicholas. I like that? I know some golf. I'm not completely ignorant. Actually, I Googled that one. I had no idea. I totally googled it. I Googled it. It wouldn't help them. That kind of teaching would not help them, but it will give you a seat at Jesus' banquet table. There are so many hard sayings of Jesus in the Bible, but this passage about entering through the narrow gate is one of the most difficult. It's difficult because it asks us one thing our flesh holds on to, and that is control. Since Adam and Eve, we have desired to wrestle control for ourselves away from God and to be our own lords and masters. As religious people, we are in danger of this at times. Of seeking control all the while hiding behind a religion. This is what the religious leaders of Jesus' day did. They wanted all the benefits of their religion, but they did not want to give up their control. They did not want to die to self. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus, living and incarnate. This is the kind of grace the man in verse 22 of our text today, wanted when he asked Jesus, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He thought his Jewishness would save him. But to enter the kingdom, to have kingdom values, to see and do what Jesus sees and does, to become less so he will become more, Jesus bids us to come and die. Sitting in this building every Sunday, listening to the words of Jesus, partaking in the Lord's Supper, will not save you. It will not save me. It only comes when your whole being is in Jesus' hands. This is what Bonhoeffer calls costly grace. He says costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It's the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out an eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. It is a paradox to say that we must strive to die to self, to live. That only happens and can only truly take place in the kingdom of God. It's another paradox that this kind of dying to self produces joy. If you tell that to the world... They won't know what you're talking about. But it produces joy. But all of this, everything that I've said, can only happen through Jesus' redeeming work in our lives. Amen. Let us pray. Father, teach us about costly grace. That's the kind of life I want to live. That's the kind of faith I want to have. Lord, teach us. Be our guide on this rocky, narrow path. Because it is only through you that we enter it. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.